We left off looking at um, these uh, scriptures and evidence of why we should take uh, scripture in context and just giving a, a few examples of what it looks like to uh, take scripture in context. And so first we looked at uh, James chapter 5 and verse 16 and this occurrence and uh, of confessing your faults one to another. And I didn't get anyone that uh, shouted out and said, hey, we should be confessing our faults one to another. Why haven't we been doing that <laughs> up until this time? Uh, because I think you guys looked at the whole context of what's going on there and understood that this is uh, not something that all believers should be doing uh, in every uh, given situation. And so another one we want to point out is over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4. Now, there's not necessarily a great deal wrong with what people do with this context of Scripture, but they limit, I believe, what love is when you simply say that love is what you find in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 uh, and, and through that whole chapter, right? And so if you go around and ask many people, how do you define love by Scripture, they're going to point you right here. And not that there's... Uh, characteristics of love that aren't pointed out here, but uh, scripture on the whole describes love as more than simply what we find uh, in this context. Now, in the context of what you see here, there's a bigger picture going on at play, and we're going to talk about that here today uh, before we move into some of these other considerations that uh, you should utilize when you're trying to interpret scripture. Uh, but let's bow in a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Father, we're grateful uh, for this day and grateful for the opportunity that we have uh, to be together and to look into your word uh, and to uh, be careful uh, with how we handle it. We don't just uh, read through scripture and start applying uh, all over the place. We understand uh, what's going on in the context of what's being stated uh, to uh, help us in our understanding of it. So we uh, pray that as we uh, continue through this study tonight and uh, with the, our, our next uh, couple of uh, times that we have together that it will have cemented uh, good principles in our head uh, whereby we should uh, interpret scripture. We pray all of these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, and so if we just went to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4 and we just took this out of context, even not even just looking at uh, verse four, if we just took the whole context of this chapter into play, uh, we might get the idea that this uh, is a simple snapshot of what love is. Um, and a lot of people come directly to verse four and say, charity suffers long, it is kind, uh, charity envies not, charity vaunteth not itself. Uh, it is not puffed up. It does not behave itself unseemly. It seeks not her own things. It is not easily provoked. It thinketh no evil. It rejoices in not in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes for all things, endures all things. Charity never fails. Now, if you just looked at that, it's a lot of what uh, charity is not, right? You don't see a lot of what it is. And that's the uh, thing that's missing here and where people limit themselves by just saying that this little piece of things that are named within this context is all of what love is. Well, we see love expressed in the action of what the son did on our behalf. Right. And it's not that these things were absent. That's almost a given. Right. And the things that he did do for us. 
but we see that he sacrificed himself on behalf of us and was willing uh, to do that for us. And so if you limited it, limited it to this context, you would be wrong. Now, in verses 1 through 8, we see the immediate context is, expresses some of the characteristics of love and really uses negative examples more of what it is not than what it is. And then in verses or chapters, the preceding chapters and the chapter to follow, in this extended context, you see that this love is in the use of spiritual gifts. And so what is the context of what's going on in this book? Expand it out to the larger context of this whole book and think of who we're talking to here, right? Who's our audience? Our immediate audience is the Corinthian saints. And we already know if we went back to the beginning of the book, they've got some problems here, right? They got problems with causing these divisions and and segregating amongst one another. Go back with me to the beginning of the book. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Actually, I think I'm looking for uh, ah, verse uh, chapter one and verse 10. Now, remember, one of the things we talked about here when uh, Paul writes these epistles, often at the beginning, he has good things to say about people before he goes into putting it on the table as to what's really going on with these guys. And so in the first verse, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified or set apart in Christ Jesus, called to be set apart ones with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace to you and peace from God, our father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so. We know that these are believers he's writing to here, right? There are things that are stated that clearly show they are this. But we also know they have some issues. Skip down to verse 10. He says, Now I beseech you, brethren, through the name of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. When you're in Christ and everyone within a congregation or, or a group of believers are connected to the head, you're going to speak in a similar way, right? And so already there's evidence that they're not in the same uh, place or on the same page. Uh, um, speak the same thing and that there be no divisions. This word for div- divisions has that idea of schisms uh, among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And so he goes on and he's going to express many examples of which they are not together, right? They're not connected. They're not on the same page. They're not on the same page with regard to who they're following. They're not on the same page with regard to how to judge sin within the church. They're not on the same page in any way, shape or form. And so as you get to the 12th chapter, he breaks down even further evidence of how they're not on the same page. And it's through the use of spiritual gifts. Right. They're not even on the same page with regard to that. Now, your spiritual gift is not for you. It's to build up the body of Christ and to build up other saints. And here they are lauding the spiritual gifts that they have and putting them up on a pedestal. Right. And saying, I have this gift or I have that gift and this one's better than yours and this kind of thing. 
That's the kind of environment that he's talking about when he gets to the 13th chapter and says, hey, here's a better way of how you can use your spiritual gifts. Go with me to, uh, go to uh, verse 1 of chapter 12. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away with dumb idols, even as you were led. And so here's a state of what you used to be. And it should look a lot different than it does now. But the thing is, it looks awfully similar. Verse three, wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the spirit of God called Jesus a curse and that no man can say that Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of gifts. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are differences of operations, but the same God, which worketh all in all. And I've pointed it out here when I've come through here before. But you see all three persons of the Godhead working together in the operations of your spiritual gift when you're using it correctly. And the point of the matter is these Corinthian saints were not right. And so he has to call them out on it. And so he goes into more detail uh, expressing how the oneness or the unification of the body is seen out through the use of the Holy Spirit. Skip down to verse 12 or verse 11. He says, but all these speaking of the spiritual gifts uh, work at the one and selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will, whereas by the body or as the body is one. And have many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is the Christ. And so here's how this body of Christ is functioning. We hear that term, body of Christ, all the time. Body of Christ, body of Christ. Do we really take a minute to uh, think about what that body is comprised of? Or is that just a term that's come into our heads in our Christian vernacular, and we just hear it over and over again, so it's just noise. God, or Christ, is at the head, right, of this body, and we are the body parts. We are all functioning and using that brain and that connectedness to Christ in order to function. And these Corinthian saints weren't doing that. In verse 13, he says, For by one spirit were we all baptized in the one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been made all or all made to drink into one spirit. And so he goes into more uh, throughout the chapter showing these differences that are at play here because of the spiritual gifts. Right. And those saying, oh, I've got this gift and that gift. Well, here in the chapter 13, he shows you how you should properly use these spiritual gifts. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men. And of angels, and have not love, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries, and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not love, it profits me nothing." Love suffers long. And so here's some things that love is. It's long suffering. And this is uh, in direct tie to some of the things going on with them, right? You got people that are doing different things. How do you suffer along with those people? Well, you're going to do it by loving them. 
uh, love is kind, love is envies not. And so here are the things that it, it isn't. Uh, when you see these things evident, you know you're not loving. And so love uh, envies not, it's not jealous. Uh, love uh, wants not itself, it is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own things, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoices not in uh, unrighteousness there really instead of iniquity, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things. Uh, this idea of putting up uh, with the idiosyncrasies of, of others, uh, it believes all things, it hopes for all things, it endures all things, or is, is, uh, I believe they're patient through all things. Charity never fails, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail, and whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. And so he looks at these gifts that uh, people might be lauding, and he says these are not <laughs> relevant to the coming. And I believe here he's talking about the completion of Scripture. When you have this whole canon, those gifts are going to pass away, right? And you have everything you need to know from the Word of God sitting right in front of you. But you'll still have believers, right? You'll still have other people that are in need of love. Uh, there and so you could continue through and in chapter 14 uh, he expresses uh, again gifts and how are you going to use these spiritual gifts and love specifically those of uh, tongues and prophecy and which ones are more uh, preferred above the other and so as you go to the larger uh, context of scripture you can go to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 20 and we know that uh, love is a part of the fruit of the spirit, right? And so when we're walking by the spirit, you're going to be able to generate love in the way that you're supposed to. We know that if you go over to John chapter 13 and verse 34, we see this is a new commandment that's given to us that we love one another. And whose example is provided in that context for how you love one another? It's Christ, right? And he showed forth the the. Uh, really, they're a bigger explanation than what we see here of love, right? That he gave himself on behalf of us. And even if you go further into uh, Galatians chapter 5, you see that he gave himself on behalf of us again in that chapter, right? And so that's a bigger expression of what love really is. You give yourself on behalf of someone else. You provide what that individual needs uh, irregardless of what's important to you and what you need in the moment, right? And so a uh, uh, bigger explanation, I think, than what you see there in chapter 13. Now, again, uh, further uh, of things we should be considering as you're looking at Scripture uh, is the audience and the language and the history. And so as you're going through, uh, just like we did in those verses, we were had more time and going through these things individually, you're going to be breaking down what do each of those words mean, right? And it's very important because we pointed out a lot of times that you're reading through scripture, you'll see words and they're not really translated in the original like you see them there. That's why you hear us all the time making these corrections right on the fly. And hopefully you guys are tracking with us to make sure that those are correct if you have your, your interlinears there uh, to kind of track it. Uh, but these are all things you could, should be considering uh, as you're going through uh, and with history and those other things that we spoke of before. Now, uh, next thing I want to look at are some interpretive myth misapplications that can be made uh, in some of the bigger areas which we see a lot of these misapplications happen. Uh, there is a lot of doctrine that's taught in Scripture, right? 
There's a lot of different principles and things that we see taught from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And the funny thing about it is everybody or a lot of people will take all of these things to themselves, right? And the Bible across the board is for us, right? And for our application. Well, this is uh, a fallacy, right? And you're going to get into some areas where you can't uh, hold up because there's going to be scripture that mitigates against what you're uh, saying is true if you do that. Uh, one of the bigger areas that we see it is with law. And you've heard us here from this church, if you've been here any length of time, uh, constantly, constantly say that we're not under law, but under grace. Why do we say that? Because scripture supports it, right? There's plenty of scriptural evidence uh, to support it. Now, we are not, as they say, antinomian, right? We believe that there is no law, no law, no law. No, we just believe that we're not under law. We believe that Jesus was the fulfillment of law and has allowed us to be able to live by grace. And so is there scriptural evidence against living by law? I would submit to you, yes. Now, there's much more evidence that I can provide than what I've done here today, but we're just going to go into a quick little uh, run through to show you in scripture that you do not live by law. And we do know that there are those out there that would teach certainly that you are under law. Uh, go with me over to Matthew chapter 15 and verse, or excuse me, chapter 5 and verse 17. And there we see a direct statement from the Son concerning this, uh, uh, concerning the law. And pick it up and uh, pick it up in verse 17. He says there, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. And so all the things that are in the Old Testament that were stated from Moses uh, to the prophets, these things did he not come to destroy. Now, if you're with us in our uh, Sunday school teaching in Acts, uh, on Sunday mornings, you see that this is one of the accusations they made and levied against uh, Stephen and against Christ, right? You, were, you said that you're going to destroy the temple and destroy the law, right, <laughs> that Moses has given unto us. Well, this is false. He says, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am come not to destroy, but to fulfill, right? And he did everything that he was required to do under law during his earthly ministry, right? And on top of that, he did it without sinning, right? There was no sacrifice that he had to give for himself. He could give himself as a sacrifice because he, he did it all perfectly, right? And so we see that uh, throughout his, his whole earthly ministry. Uh, verse 18, for verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one... Uh, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. And we know, uh, again, that this, this came to pass. Now, we also see over in Acts chapter 10 and verse 11 that Peter receives a message from the Holy Spirit that hints at the abolishment of the law for practice. Go with me over there to chapter 10 of Acts in verse 11 or thereabouts. pick it up in verse 9 and it says there 
on the morrow, as they uh, went on their journey and drew nigh unto the city, Peter went up, up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And he became very hungry and would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. And so uh, this trance here uh, it comes from our English word uh, ecstasy or the Greek word that carries over into our English word ecstasy. It has the idea of standing outside of yourself. Right. And so uh, I like to think of it as he's sitting there looking at his body sleeping. Right. But he's seeing something else taking place here. And so he was outside of himself. Verse 11 and saw heaven open and a certain vessel descending unto him as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth, wherein were all manner of four footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now, these are classic uh, words that tie to law, right? There were certain animals that they were not supposed to partake of, right? Anything that splits the hoof, uh, certain crustaceans and things from the sea, they're not supposed to eat. Verse 13, and there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Oh, excuse me, <laughs> verse 15. Uh, and the voice spake unto him again the second time, uh, what God hath cleansed. This word for cleansed here is our word for purified. He's caused it to be clean. That call uh, not thou common. This was done thrice, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. Now, while Peter doubted in himself what this vision uh, which he had seen should mean, behold, the men which were sent, uh, sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for, uh, for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And called and asked whether Simon, uh, which is surnamed Peter, lodged there. And so we see this go on uh, into this interplay with Cornelius, right? And he's going to go into this Gentile's house and give him the gospel. And not only him, but his whole household is going to be saved, right? And so we see that there's a change that is going on. He's been told to eat something that's common or unclean where the law forbids you to do that. So there's a little bit of a, a question going on here. Now, this question extends not just to Peter, but now that you have Gentiles that are coming into the body of Christ, how do they fit into everything? Because you still got these Jews that are living under law, right? Where do they go each time that they want to uh, communicate? They go to the synagogues, right, where these Jews are practicing law. Uh, and so this becomes a big question, so much so that in chapter 15, they have to get clarification. How are these Gentiles supposed to be living, right? They don't even understand yet. Hey, we're not supposed to even be living by law. Uh, that's something they're still working on. But you see it in chapter 15 of, of Acts. Go with me over there. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 15, And certain men which came down from Judea uh, taught the brethren... And said, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Uh, when therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way uh, by the church, they passed through 
uh, Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles. And they uh, caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come into Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and of the elders and of, uh, declared all the things God had done with them. But there rose a certain sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it is needful to circumcise them, speaking of the Gentiles, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. And when they uh, had been disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Spirit, even as he did unto us. And he put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as they. And so not just the hearing of the facts of the gospel, right, to be saved. It's through that grace from Jesus Christ that they shall be saved, right? <laughs> from uh, your present tense salvation all the way uh, to your future. Uh, and they go on there. We could go through the whole chapter, but you see this back and forth, right? And they end up giving the Gentiles these four little uh, laws that they're supposed to keep uh, as they couldn't quite figure it out uh, completely. But they know that the Gen Gentiles are not under law, right? And furthermore, they should have known that they weren't under law, but they didn't uh, quite get that understanding yet. Now, Paul's going to make it quite clear over in Galatians as he's speaking to these believers at Galatia. And if you uh, went back into the story, uh, he's obviously given them how they're supposed to live prior to this. And he's in astonishment that they're living according to law, right? Because he didn't teach them that way. He taught them to live uh, by grace. And so pick it up in verse 1 of Galatians chapter 1. And it says there, uh, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither uh, through man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him out from the dead. And all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself on behalf of our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil, not really world there, but age, according to the will of God and our Father, to him, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel, verse 6, I'm in amazement that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of, of Christ unto another kind of gospel, right? And he's not talking about the gospel for salvation. Again, I emphasize this. It seems like every time I come through here, but it's for a point, right? He can't be talking about the gospel for present salvation. He just stated to you all the virtues of somebody that's a believer or a group of believers. He's talking about another kind of gospel for how you're living in the present. And to go a step further, there are elements of the gospel for salvation that relate to us in the here and now and have power to how we're going to live in this present salvation. And they have fallen out of that and are choosing to live by something else. In verse seven, he says, which is not another. 
But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel of heaven preach another kind of gospel or another, uh, yeah, another kind of gospel unto you, than that which we have preached unto, uh, unto you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than you have received, let him be accursed. For do I persuade God or do I uh, seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. And so how are you going to please men? Uh, acquiescing to these ones that are trying to get them to live by law. Uh, we could go on. Verse 11. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after men. Neither uh, did I receive it of man. Neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard my conversation in uh, times past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. Now, this is an interesting thing he says right here in the middle of all of this, right, where he's talking about how you live out your present salvation. Well, the law, right, if he was living by the standard of the law, that led him to persecuting believers, right? Not, not correct behavior, not the right kind of behavior that he should have been doing. Uh, verse 14, and profited in the Jews' religion above many mine equals uh, of, of mine own nation or in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son unto me or in me, that I might preach uh, him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem uh, to them which were apostles before me, but uh, I went into Arabia and returned again to Macedonia, or excuse me, into Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him uh, 15 days, but other apostles saw I none save James, the Lord's brother. Um, and so we could go on and go through the uh, several chapters of this, but this lays the foundations for what you see in the book of Galatians. You see Paul trying to tell these guys, look, I never taught you to live by law. I taught you to live by grace. As he gets to chapter five, how do you do that? I taught you to walk by the spirit, by means of the spirit. And you will never fulfill the lust of the flesh. He goes on to explain what are the parts of the fruit of the spirit that would show that you're walking by the spirit. And what are the works of the flesh that show that you're not walking uh, according to the spirit. Uh, and then he expressly states, let's go over to chapter five really quick. Uh, just to point something out there prior to uh, getting to verse 16. He's going to contrast uh, freedom that you have by grace with the uh, subjugation that you have uh, by living under law. In verse 1, he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. That sound familiar? Sounds like what Peter was saying in chapter 15, right? Why are you putting this yoke on uh, other people, on the Gentiles, which neither we nor our fathers could bear, right? And so Paul is saying, don't be entangled with this yoke of bondage, uh, speaking of the law. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again, every man that is circumcised, that he is a debtor to do the whole law. And so what is this circumcision? It's 
a carrying of the promise that was made to Abraham, right? We talked about that in uh, Sunday school on uh, Sunday in the book of Acts. This promise that was made to Abraham that your seed will be blessed, and this is the uh, confirming of that promise to do circumcision, right? Circumcision, it's nothing, right? We do circumcision in America. We just don't do it for religious purposes. It's for cleanliness purposes, right? And so you see that uh, here. Uh, for verse 4, Christ has become of no effect unto you, whoever, uh, whosoever you are uh, that are justified by law, you are fallen from grace. And so you can't live by two, right? You can't live by grace and live by law. It's impossible. And it's clearly stated that we're supposed to be living by grace in Scripture. And so the law uh, still is still taught by some for practice. Now, I don't want to call anybody out. <laughs> there are people out there that you see. Just go and turn on your television and listen to some of these televangelists, right? You'll hear it before long that you're supposed to be living by law. And if they don't expressly state it, they state it in the way that they're preaching, right? That you need to do this or that. Don't do this or that. All of these restrictions that you can place on yourself, right? It doesn't just have to be the Mosaic law, right? And then some people even break that down and say, oh, you're under the Ten Commandments. Oh, no, you're not under the Ten Commandments. You're just under the moral law, but you're not under the ceremonial law. And all of these different things that people get into. How clearer can you say it than you're not under law? You're under grace, right? And as uh, Lewis Perry Chafer says, grace makes all service to God voluntary, right? God doesn't want you doing things out of restriction. He doesn't want you uh, being handcuffed and led along to do this or that. He wants you to voluntarily give your service to him, right? And so this is the total difference that we see. Uh, those living under law or by law are unable to live by grace, as we saw in uh, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. Now, another area, area that you can look at where people can make a lot of errors or interpretive mistakes is in the parables, right? And we talked about this before. Uh, we won't go into a lot of the parables. I could have given you a lot of uh, illustrations here, but we've just run out of time uh, on this month. Um, but the parables are a, a place where people say you can go to get deeper truth, right? Very contrary to what we see in Scripture stated clearly by the Lord concerning why he uses parables, right? And we looked at this one a couple weeks ago, but let's go back to it over in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 11. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 11. Now, I don't know. I used to have pretty good reading comprehension skills when I was younger, but I've gotten older, I'll admit. And I don't read as much as I used to, but <laughs> I, I think I have a pretty clear understanding of what's stated here in this context. You guys let me know if I'm wrong here. Uh, I could be. I'll, I'll allow for the, the fact that I could be wrong. Uh, pick it up in verse 1. He says, The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in parables. So here you see this great crowd of people gathered, right? Perfect opportunity for him to reveal truth <laughs> to this large group of people. 
And, it, and we're, we're going to see something a little bit different here. And so he spake to them in parables. Now, how, how much easier would it have been for him to just say what he was trying to say? When you have this captive audience here of people that want to hear from you. He could just say something very plainly. He didn't have to put it into a parable. But we see that he put it into a parable. So, okay. This is to display further truth, right? Uh, saying, behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed some seeds, uh, fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon the stony places, where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up, because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they uh, withered away. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But others fell into the good ground and brought forth fruit, some 100-fold, uh, some 60-fold, and some 30-fold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Did he say, everybody out here in the crowd, hear what I have to say unto you? No, he's even restricting right there those that are in the crowd to have those that have ears to hear. Let them hear and understand. And it doesn't mean that everybody that heard that message is going to clearly understand what he's trying to say, right? Well, let's take it a step further. In verse 10, And the disciples came to him and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? And he answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given doesn't sound like he was trying to convey truth to anyone in that crowd, right? I, and the wording there is pretty strong. Them versus you. These are some strong uh, words that he's using here, right? Only they were meant to know this message. And so how can that be conveying any further truth to people, right? Uh, and people really use these parables as, a, as an example of how you should be uh, expanding truth, and I just don't know where they're getting it from. Um, again, my comprehension could be bad. In verse 12, it says, For whosoever hath to him uh, shall be given, and he shall have more abundance, uh, but whosoever hath not uh, from him shall be taken away, uh, even that which he hath. Uh, therefore, I speak to them in parables, because they seeing see, uh, seeing see not, and hearing they hear not. Neither do they understand. And so, uh, again, to me, it's pretty clear. I don't know. Uh, we'll let, leave the rest to you guys for that. Uh, another area where we can get a lot of misinterpretation from is types. And so types are used by some uh, to make connections between themes in the Old Testament and the New Testament that Scripture does not necessarily make. Right. And so uh, I don't know if you guys have heard this, but there's a lot of people that they'll go back to every little thing that they see in the Old Testament. Uh, if it's got red in it, it must be pointing to the blood of Jesus. right? <laughs> or this thing that was here or this thing that was there. It's certainly a type of something that you see in the New Testament. Right. Well, one good way and an easy way to keep yourself restricted. Right. With that is to look at what scripture says are types, right? And there are some clear verses where we see uh, scripture point out uh, types. And I didn't go, again, in-depth in this because we could have been uh, 20 or 30 pages in just looking at uh, types specifically. Uh, but a lot of types are expressed by the Greek noun tupas, 
right? And so when you look at this word, it means types, right? And if you see it expressing something that ties to the Old Testament, you can understand that Old Testament thing is a type of something in the New Testament or vice versa. And so uh, I would define this tupas as objects uh, or with reference to how it's used in uh, this theological way. Uh, as objects, uh, individuals, and other representations that are used to provide a representation of something that has yet to come. And so uh, we see this in Scripture. Go with me over to Romans chapter 5 and verse 14, and we see this with reference to Adam and Christ. And so you can know that Adam was a type of Christ. Why? <laughs> because Scripture tells us so. Romans chapter 5, and let's pick it up at uh, verse 9. He says, much more uh, than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. Uh, and that wrath there should have a the on the front of it. Uh, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by uh, the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received atonement, or really their uh, reconciliation. In verse 12, wherefore, as by one man's sin, or by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Uh, and really here, <laughs> this is where it gets into getting into the language, right? And why language is so important. And so he's talking about Adam here. Now we know that all men sin, right? But he's not talking about that. And the, the context is going to clear that up. If you look at this word for sin, have sin, all men sin at a point in time. It's a aorist uh, verb that is used here. And so it's pointing to a specific point in time. And the context will bear out what that point in time was. In verse 13, he says, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed or counted when there is no law. And so how could sin be imputed prior to, to law is what it's saying here. Verse 14, nevertheless, death, which is a punishment for sin, reigned from Adam to Moses, even after uh, them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is a figure or a type of him that was to come. And so a mouthful is said there, right? Our sin is counted to us because Adam sinned, and that sin that he, or his sin is counted to us uh, because he sinned. Uh, and you see the evidence of that by death not pa or death continuing to happen even uh, uh, to those that weren't under law. In verse 15 it says, But not uh, as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more, uh, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, uh, which is by one man, Jesus, hath abounded unto many. And so you see this back and forth between Adam and Jesus here, but suffice it to say that Adam was a type of Christ, right? And so uh, Adam's life was pointing to the need for one to come to take away the sin of men because his sin, uh, Adam's sin, was imparted or accounted uh, to us by God. Now, we also see over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1, 
that the cloud that the Israelites followed and the rock that they drank from were identified as types as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. I've not been paying attention to the clock. The thing I <laughs> finally looked up there. <laughs> um, verse 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you uh, should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank from uh, of the rock, or that rock, spiritual rock, that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not uh, well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6, now uh, these things were our examples or types uh, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Uh, neither be idolaters as some of them uh, were, uh, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Uh, and so you see elements of uh, types that were provided there. The rock, right, is a type of Christ, uh, as well as that cloud that was uh, following them through. And, and these things also were a type, the, the actions of the Israelites, right? This is not something that you wanted to be involved in, and they became uh, negative examples uh, for believers in the New Testament. Now, uh, another area that you can uh, have a lot of confusion with is prophecy, uh, and we could probably spend a whole, uh, the whole quarter going through different uh, parts of prophecy and how people uh, get those all discombobulated. Uh, but we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. And the rapture is one of the points <laughs> or the areas where there's a lot of confusion, right? You have some people that believe that there's going to be a rapture at the middle of the tribulation period. And some people believe there's going to be a rapture at the end of the tribulation period. Some people don't believe in the rapture at all, right? And you're, we're going to go through wrath and all of this stuff is going to happen to us. Uh, I think it was uh, R.C. Sproul. That believed, and here I am calling out people, and the guy, poor guy is dead now. He knows, he knows about it now, right? Uh, but he believed that we're in the uh, thousand-year kingdom right now, I think. I'm wrong in that. Yeah. And so I think I heard him say that several times, that we're, we're in the ongoing kingdom right now. And a lot of people believe that. Uh, but we'll look at these just a little bit. And so pre-tribulation uh, viewpoint believes that believers will be raptured prior to the beginning of the tribulation period. And this is most in line, in my humble opinion, <laughs> with a, a consistent interpretation of Scripture. Right. And so as you go through Scripture uh, and some of the key uh, revelatory uh, Scriptures that are given, really books, if you look at Daniel and you look at Revelation, and then you come through the New Testament and look at a lot of the different epistles. It has elements all throughout there that the rapture is going to occur, right? And so what evidence do we have? Uh, the tribulation period is described as a pouring out of the wrath of God while believers have been said to be saved from the wrath to come. Now, let, go with me over to Romans. We were just there, and I'll point this out to you. Romans chapter 5. I didn't make note of this, but I caught it while I was coming through. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 9, 
Uh, go back just a little bit to uh, verse 6. It says, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died on behalf of the ungodly. Uh, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. And so if we were righteous, we wouldn't be in need of a Savior. Uh, unfortunately, we are righteous and we do need a Savior. Yet peradventure, for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died on behalf of us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved. And so we are saved, right? We know that is a fact. First Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 4. But here we see we shall be saved in the future from not wrath through him, but the wrath. Right. And if you look over there, if you have your interlinears, you'll see that little article that should be standing there in front of wrath. This is a particular wrath that is coming. Right. And we've been saved from it. Thank God for his grace. And so uh, here you see this. We also see it over in First Thessalonians, chapter one and verse 10. First Thessalonians, chapter one and verse 10. And pick it up in verse 7. He says that so that you are examples. Here's our word for types again. He's here examples to or types to uh, other believers. To all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from, from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything for themselves show uh, of us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how you turn to God from idols to to serve the living and true God and wait for the son from heaven whom, whom he raised from the dead even Jesus which delivered us out from the wrath to come there's a wrath that's coming and you and I, thank God, have been delivered from it, right? By believing the facts of the gospel. Now, also we see that the Lord's promise to return in the same manner in which he left is in contradiction with the description we see provided by Paul here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16. Go with me over to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16 really quickly. And we'll circle back to Acts chapter 1. And you let me know, uh, through the detail that we see here, what you think. I think I suspect I know what you think, but <laughs> maybe you have had a change of mind since <laughs> the last time we talked. In verse 13 it says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. And so he's talking about people not taking a siesta or a nap. These are people that are sleep uh, in a, in a uh, permanent state of sleep of having been separated from their bodies. Uh, and that with you uh, sorrow not even as ones which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in or really there through Jesus will God bring with him. And so you see this idea of them coming back. With Jesus, verse fifteen. For uh, this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that 
uh, we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord. And so here's a key term here, the coming of the Lord, right? And so people say, oh, you see the coming of the Lord. Post-trib people will say it's at the end of the tribulation period, right? Uh, shall not prevent, this word for prevent has the idea of preceding something, uh, them which are asleep. And so what does this mean? It means that they will be resurrected first, right? And if the Lord were to come back now, we would be raptured into heaven. And yet those people that have died in Christ first, they would get their new bodies prior to us. Verse 16, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we uh, which are alive and remain shall be caught up, 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 key word there, up, together with them in clouds into a meeting with the Lord, where? On the ground? <laughs> no, he says in the air. And these are key things to remember as we're going back over the book of Acts. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Uh, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, go back with me to Acts. And we see something very important stated here in Acts chapter 1. And we'll probably close out here. Acts chapter 1. Now, remember uh, the context here. They, they are asking him uh, these apostles and disciples uh, what's going to happen now right where are we at in God's prophetic schedule is there uh, what what's going to happen and so he's given them information with regard to this before but they want this kingdom to come right that's stuck in their head and they want it to come right now and they're going to continue to have that in their mind I think over the next several chapters until they really get an idea of what God is doing. In verse 6, it says, When they were therefore come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times and or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own authority, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all of Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. That means he was on the ground, right? And he was taken up off the ground, left the ground, right? Um, and while, in verse 10, they uh, looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, You men of Galilee, why stand ye uh, gazing into the heaven? This same Jesus, which you have seen taken up from you into heaven, shall, in, uh, so, uh, shall, so, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. And so what does like manner there mean? If he's going to come back in life-like manner and he left from the ground, he's telling them that he's going to come back to the ground again. And this would tie with prophecy that we see all throughout the Old Testament, right, where he's going to land again on that same place in which he left. But before that, we're going to see something happen that's called the rapture, right? And that's uh, two different things, two different uh, comings that we see described in Scripture. And so uh, your mid-tribulation pe people would believe uh, that the believers will be raptured 
three and a half years through the tribulation period. Of course, it's seven years, and so halfway through it, uh, they believe the great tribulation begins, and prior to the great tribulation, we're going to be raptured out of here, right? So we'll go through the first three and a half years. Uh, it believes that the wrath of God doesn't begin prior to that time, and so uh, you see that. And then we'll come back next week and look at uh, some of these other ideas here. Uh, the post-tribulation rapture, uh, those that don't believe in a rapture at all, uh, some of the viewpoints on uh, the millennial kingdom uh, and how uh, that's carried out. And then uh, finally, we want to understand that prophecy has to always, always be kept in context, right? Context, context, context. We keep coming back around to that because it's important, right? If you don't understand or utilize context, when you get into Revelation, you're going to be lost, right? If you divorce Revelation from the rest of what you see going on in the Bible, it's going to just be a mishmash of all kinds of stuff that's going on there, and it doesn't make any sense, right? First of all, it's not in a numeric order of how things are going to happen or chronological order, so that'll throw you off, right? Uh, and so if you have a consistent way of how you're approaching Scripture, these things make a lot more sense, and you're able to, to better understand them.